This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode number 19 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Robinson, and unfortunately... Andrew Johnson won't be here with us this week because he got trapped in Virginia, which if I listen to enough rap music, it's taught me might not be the best place. I think I'm listening to the wrong rap music. (laughs) That is very true. Um, I do not listen to that much rap music anymore. So maybe I'm maybe my point of view is skewed. But anyways, we have a replacement to which we might never call Andrew back again because we have Mr. William Bibiani. (laughs) <laughs> writer for Crave Online and co-host of the B-Movies podcast. That's correct. Subscribe on iTunes. As well as a radio icon. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I just started uh, like a, like about two months ago. I do a regular bit uh, most Fridays on KFWB 980 AM radio in Los Angeles. But I won't be on this week because I'll be doing a set visit. But pretty much every other Friday I'm on about 945 in the morning. Whoever can hear that radio station, go listen to that, because sadly, I live in the Caribbean, so I can't hear it. William, you'll have to record it for me and send it to me. Oh, I promise nothing. But anyways, as usual, we are going to be covering the HBO television show, The Newsroom. Um, And this week, we are going to be discussing the episode entitled One Step Too Many, which was directed by... I have the page open... Julian Farino. Julian Farino, right. And this is the episode in which we go over a myriad of things, including the inclusion of the red team, finally. We're going to be talking about Will's relationship with his tabloid journalist girlfriend, as well as Jim's ongoing standings with Haley, the girl from the Romney campaign. I think it's technically Hallie. Hallie. Oh, uh, my apologies. But before we go any further, I want to ask you, Will, you've been on the podcast, you were on last season. How for you has it changed this season to last and how are you enjoying this season? Uh, I'm enjoying this season a lot more. It's still one of the most problematic shows on television in a lot of ways. Um, One of the joys of the newsroom is sort of seeing a a form of idealism glorified and dramatized, but the downside of that is sometimes it's just insufferable. And even if you agree with some of the things it's saying, you just want to slap everyone for it. And all of that is still there, but they've done a much better job dramatizing things this season. The romantic subplots are still crap. And they will always be crap, I think. They're just arbitrary and hackneyed, and I don't really care. But what they have done is embrace one of the fundamental flaws of the show, one of the things that really hurt last season, which was because they set the newsroom in the real world, anytime there's like a news story that isn't real, you know it's bullshit. You know it's fake, and so they spent several episodes at the end of last season setting up this big government scandal cover-up, and we knew it couldn't go anywhere because it wasn't really in the news, and if it was, we would have heard about it. So they wasted several episodes trying to build suspense for something that we knew could never bear fruit. And in this season, they're doing the same thing, but... 
but they had the wisdom to do the entire season as an extended flashback with everyone knowing that they screwed up you know being on the same page as the audience being aware that this was a fake news story so of course it is complete crap because the show is aware of that now now we can actually see it as like a train wreck in slow motion seeing how everything's gonna uh lead up to them acting on this completely bullshit operation genoa subplot which again if they hadn't done that if they hadn't done the flashback structure would have just been almost unwatchable it would have been just boring as hell but we know it's fake they know it's fake and they're really embracing it and they're making some pretty good television as a result so yeah i i think uh it addressed my biggest concern i think it's a better show for the most part i think the average episode this season is better than the average episode last season and i'm enjoying it a lot more I'm glad to hear that because this is one of those shows, problematic is a word that kind of gets dished out a lot at it, but I feel like the show, it kind of is growing on everyone. I think it might just be an adjustment of expectations throughout. Do you do you feel like that's at all going to be happening with the show with viewers? Um, I think there's increasing acceptance. Um, I have a friend, Adam Thomas, he reviews video games, and there was a trend he noticed in video game critics where they tend to be a lot kinder to the, to the, to the things that they review than, say, someone who reviews movies does. And one of the things he talked about was a, a sense of indoctrination. When you have to spend 10 hours with something and you sort of get used to it, you do get used to it. You do start forgiving the little flaws. You start seeing the flaws as all part of the rich tapestry of what you're reviewing. And I think that's happening to the newsroom, where the newsroom is good enough, just good enough. Like all, like the, there's good bon mots in every single episode. The cast is solid. It's very nicely produced. When it's great, it is really great. Uh, and it. I think we're starting to sort of get a little blind to when it screws up. Uh, I like that people still take it to task for its portrayal of women. It's not as bad this season, but it's still problematic. And again, I do find its preachiness often absolutely insufferable, but that is what the show is about. It is about showing an idealistic way in which the 24-hour news cycle can be used. So I, I think we're starting to focus more on the good things and starting to accept the bad things as we're kind of stuck with it, but we don't want to stop watching the newsroom yet. Okay, so so moving into the actual content of this episode that we that we saw this weekend past, I want to start out with this one storyline, um, the Jim and Hallie storyline. Uh, <laughs> because I, you I want feel, to start with the romance. That's I, what you I want do. to because I want to get it out of the way. Because there's so All much right. other things that we can talk about, but I want to just shove this one to the side as we throw it out there. Okay. Last year, there was a lot of complaints, mainly by my co-host and I think the rest of the internet, about a lot <laughs> of the romantic elements of this show. I was one of those. I was one of the people complaining. I, I hate it's. It's, it was really, listen, it was, all I'm going to say, I'm going to let you move on, but like, all I'm going to say is this. In the first episode of The Newsroom, Mac takes Jim aside, points to, to Allison Pill's character, and says, see her? You should have a romantic subplot with her. And then they just do. It's, the, it's 
so forced and contrived. Every time there's a situation where, oh, maybe Jim and Maggie could finally get together. Nope, he's going to go on the road and fall in love with Hallie. Why? Because they can't get back together, because they can't finally get together for real until like the last episode of this show. And they're just finding ways to separate them in a really forced, contrived manner. And then while they're separated, they're going to shove another love interest in there that we know isn't going to work out, that they never give quite enough screen and character time to to make it work. We can see this now with uh, Will and Nina, where it's like she they were dating, and I guess, and like six months have passed since like the last episode or something. So we saw that they were dating for a while, and well, that was just that was just forced. That was just now that's over. And now I'm seeing in this episode, like, there's this weird extended sequence with Mac and Don, and I'm like, don't let Mac and Don get together. <laughs> if Mac and Don sleep together, I'm going to curb stomp someone. Jesus Christ, can we just let Don and Sloan get together? They're like, no, oh, no, the, the, no, 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 like, please, like, it's the only, like, I just want Sloan to, like, be okay, and granted she can be okay without a man, I'm actually, like, I'm not gonna, like, be one of those assholes who thinks that, whatever, but, like, she clearly wants to be in a relationship, she keeps dating these guys, but I'm like, god, Don and Mac, god, that'd be a terrible combination, just, uh. Just saying it out loud, thinking about, like, Don and Mac just, in whatever capacity of relationship, other than actually being in an office together, it just sounds mm-hmm. wrong. Um, but I mean, with Jim himself, I almost kind of want to make jokes as to he has issues with blonde hair. Like, the moment he sees blonde hair, <laughs> he kind of, there's something that goes off in his brain and he goes must, right? This whole idea of this dinner where he finally gets to see Hallie again after her being on the road for a month, and this dinner that he gets set up where he brings Neil along to meet this other girl. I don't know how romantic it actually ended up playing off, but that might have just been Sorkin's own crazy keep the dialogue moving attitude. How did it really play off for you, this whole subplot, including the former Romney communications director? You know, I actually really liked it. Uh, Again, I don't particularly care for the subplot, but I thought the way that the whole uh, dinner and date scenario played felt pretty genuine, to me anyway, as someone who often is forced to socialize while I'm on the road, like if I'm doing a set visit or an out-of-town press junket, and I'm hanging out with people in my social circle at work, and we talk about work, we talk about work constantly, and then, like, eh, someone will hook up or whatever, so there's, like, a little bit of romantic tension in the room. It felt like that. It, 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 it had a good combination of everyone just being really passionate and caring about what they talk about and talking about their work because that's what they actually care about, even though, strictly speaking, it's supposed to be social. I, I liked that. I thought Neil was very, very funny when his date started going off about Ron Paul. And what was he like, what the fuck did you just say? Like, just re- realizing he's not getting laid now. It's like he doesn't even want to anymore. Just like he has to, to call this girl out on her Ron Paul bullshit. Whether or not it's actually bullshit, that's, that's what he thinks. I thought it was funny. I thought, uh, I thought adding Taylor to the mix... Uh, was uh, an amusing situation, and I actually like that. Uh, even though that she was a spokesman for for a spokesperson for Romney, uh, that she has a good point, which is you're, you guys are making a big deal out of gaffes, and like, yeah, yeah, we were. But the thing that I don't like about this, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. Uh, the thing that I don't like about this is that it's getting me worked up the way that I was 
during the actual Republican primary. Like, it's just, it's stirring up all these old anxieties and resentments of me just wanting this not to go on any longer. Like, can we just stop talking about Mitt Romney and Ron Paul and all the stupid shit they're talking about? Can we just get the election over with? So, so you're not able to watch what's happening here and laugh at all the Romney-Ryan things being like, oh, I remember that time when... It's not nostalgia for me yet. It's still a fresh wound. You know, like, I, th- I think, like, in, like, five years, I'll be able to look back at it and go, oh, yeah, I remember that. But it's there's a lot of these resentments and annoyances that are still in the conversation about politics. And it's not – and it feels right. I mean, I enjoyed the scene, but it, it's not playing off as acute remembrance of things past. It's, it's, it seems more like we're stirring up the pot unnecessarily again uh and that's me and that's that's not the show's fault the show is doing an adequate job here it's it's me in my opinion and my frustration with the way that we cover politics in this country that's really weird because i feel like how you say is it's really more you than the show because i feel watching the show as it relates to the actual coverage of the campaign which was one of the things that they promised to feature prominently this season and I guess they are, but at the same time, I feel like they've done something that I've asked them to do from episode one, season one of the entire show, which is use the news as a backdrop for character. Because for the entire Romney campaign, it always feels like they're using that only as an excuse to have our characters be somewhere. And we end up having conversations more about actual things that people would have conversations about other than retreading all of the Romney bullshit that people went through. Because even in this episode, there's a there's a moment where we kind of montage through a lot of news coverage with Will at the desk talking about the campaign, but we never actually know what he's talking about. We just know he's talking about campaign things, and it's just like, guys, we're moving on. <laughs> if you paid attention, you'll recognize a few soundbites. Like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. Oh, wow, they're really trudging through, like, the next few months, aren't they? Like, right in the middle of the episode. Uh, which is a really daring narrative device. I, I will give the newsroom that. You don't see any other show just burning through months of time in like in between episodes in a season or in the middle of an episode. That's really bold, and they get away with it better than they than you'd think they would just reading that on paper. But the thing is, when you talk about like how they're using it as a backdrop for character stuff. I feel like what they use it as a backdrop for too often is either a backdrop for these love triangles that, again, I just don't care about that much, or they use it as yet another reason to launch into a a sort of an impassioned speech. Jim had a good moment on the bus a few episodes ago where he was just like, hey, you know, they should be afraid of us. They should be answering our questions. We should be doing real news. Who's with me? And no one was with them. And that was a good comment on, you know, sort of the Frady Cat uh, tactics of how we were covering politics, which is we don't want to lose our access to the politicians so we won't actually do our jobs. All right. That's a that's a decent message. But if that's all we were getting to, if all we were getting out of the whole uh, Romney campaign trail subplot was yet another impassioned speech, knowing it can't go anywhere and getting Jim in bed with someone who isn't Maggie so we can extend their love triangle for the next few seasons. I, I do consider that frustrating. I do consider that something of maybe not a waste of time, but I don't really see it as as brilliant storytelling. All right, so just to cap off anything that is love triangle so we can move forward. 
talking about Maggie this episode, even at the end of this whole subplot of the dinner and the love triangle, we see Maggie at the bar by herself and we end up finding out that the bar that she's at happens to be in the hotel that Jim is taking um, Hallie to go and be distracted, have a distraction, is that the word he uses? I think so. Something To cock block, let's just be honest here. That's what she was there for. Right. Um, and we end up seeing these moments where she's just at the bar by herself, she gets a drink sent to her by some random dude, and, I mean, it, 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 the show even reminds us, uh, leading into this episode, the conversation that she had with Jim previously about the fact that she's sometimes afraid to go home, to be in her home alone. And so she goes out drinking and about her having drinking issues at work, coming to work drunk. I don't know if this is a moment where the show is just trying to show us that Maggie is going further and further into this rabbit hole of an of a vodka bottle, or if this is more love triangle setup. I have no clue, and I am hoping it's not love triangle setup. <laughs> I, I I hope so too, but you know what? I I I think it is because if if this was Aaron Sorkin trying to show like ah she's got a real problem, uh, I think he would have done worse than having her go home with the bartender who didn't seem like too bad a guy. I think it would have ended with her going home with like the sleazy guys who bought her a drink. Not that I think the bartender is going to become an important character. I'm sure he's just someone she's going to sleep with. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Uh, that or maybe she'll let something slip to him out of annoyance with Jim and, and he'll be a plot point that way. But again, this just seems this this doesn't seem like an like an uh, the horrors of alcoholism subplot. This feels like just more love triangle stuff. Ah, see, she still wants to be together, but she can't bring herself to say anything because reasons. Hopefully we can move forward from this and we'll never move forward from it. We're stuck with this forever. <laughs> this is this is what we'll, we'll always have to accept this as like part of our of our ongoing semi-abusive relationship with the newsroom. That's like it's like the newsroom has a drinking problem except instead of drinking alcohol, it's like gets way too up in Jim and Maggie's business. You know, like, you just can't stop talking about it. It's just like, shut up, we're having a good time. And you're obsessed. You're, you, the, the newsroom is Jim. Oh my god, the newsroom is Jim. It's like a pretty nice guy, you like hanging out with it, but it's really preachy and it can't shut up about Alison Pill. I'd like to petition that newsroom is actually more Sloan. Because it's a show hmm. where... We're always in the background trying to remind you that good things exist and things can be good. But at the end of the day, we really just want to laugh. So we're going to be talking about reindeers and shit. Sarin gas? I don't believe it either, and I also don't believe in Santa Claus. But if I saw eight reindeer take flight, I couldn't believe it. You haven't news. seen eight reindeer. You've talked to someone who says he's seen eight reindeer. And we have someone who's tweeted about the reindeer, and a third witness who's interviewed victims of the reindeer, and a highly placed confidential source who's confirmed that in this place at that time, reindeer flew. It couldn't matter less, but Santa Claus has nine reindeer. Rudolph. Mac, I didn't think that the vixen... How many was that? It really doesn't matter. You believe we used Sarah? Yes. On civilians? Yes. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer. What are you doing? Well, I'm digesting what I just heard. I'm doing a fact check on the number of reindeer. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Comet, Blitzen, Cupid, Donner, Vixen, and somebody else. Rudolph. Thank you. But how many was that? Start again. No. The reindeer conversation. So this this shows up in uh, the... When we start... We're introduced to the red team. 
at the beginning of this episode, and they're talking about Operation Genoa, and they're finally showing it to Jim and Don and Sloan to get their outside opinion on it, because everyone who's been researching it for months might be too close to see the flaws in their argument. And then they won't shut up about how many reindeer there are. And while it's cute, and while I just like seeing Olivia Munn talk about reindeer, it feels like writing. It feels like something that, like, seriously, that none of these people would really go on about, at least for this long, in this conversation. It feels like Aaron Sorkin's desperately trying to be cute because he knows the only reason this scene exists is as, an, is as a plot point. So I couldn't quite enjoy the reindeer. Maybe I'm alone on that. Maybe one else enjoyed the reindeer shtick. Is that just me? I, I thoroughly enjoyed the reindeer shtick, but it's mainly because I live and breathe for Sloan Sabbath in this show. But, I mean, it's it's just mainly that, that idea, the thing of having the tangential moment within a conversation. And something Sorkin does repeatedly in everything he writes, in everything, where he just kind of has a, one conversation going about a ridiculously serious topic and then brings in a tangential idea which has absolutely nothing to do and is so trivial that we end up laughing at the fact as to how much time people will give the trivial tangential conversation. And I laughed. <laughs> you know, and, but here's the thing. You bring up how often Aaron Sorkin does this, and he's been doing this basically his entire career as a writer. And it's getting to the point now where it's like, yeah, writers have certain styles. All right, if you're, if you're a good writer and you have a strong opinion... You know, you're, you can see a through line through your work. Yeah, okay, fine. I get that. That's fine. But it's this particular trick that he employs in his conversations, considering that seriously most of the stuff he writes is dialogue-centric, is starting to feel less like organic dialogue and more like math. You know, well, I'm writing this, uh, writing this important scene about the red team. I'd better uh, digress into a reindeer conversation or something else of equal limited import and uh, turn that into an amusing aside. Ha ha! Just won another Emmy. You know, I just <laughs> it, it, it doesn't feel natural. There are times when it feels natural. Usually, when it's brief. They did a really good job of get, keeping that kind of uh, banter alive with Will and Sloane's scenes as, like, big brother, little sister. Like, all that was really, really cute, and I totally got into it, and those scenes worked well because those actors have really good chemistry together. But, yeah, when it's so focused on a plot point and we're just shoehorning this other conversation in here and not even just making it a part of the conversation, but making it the point of the conversation while we're in the middle of talking about what could be the most important story of their lives. Like, there's a moment where Don is talking about it and I get the impression that he's he, he says something along the lines of, I'm focusing on the reindeer because I don't want to be having this conversation right now because this is fucked up. I buy it from Don, but like Sloane just seems scatterbrained sometimes in a way that doesn't seem true to her character. That's when it bothers me. That's when it feels artificial to me. Are you kidding me? Seems scatterbrained, which isn't true to her character. Talking about a character who we've seen come into a room to argue about drones with an empty piece of paper just because, and she says this herself, just because having the piece of paper in her hand seemed more dramatic. That's not scatterbrained. <laughs> that's focused. That's focused on the presentation of an argument. All right? It's funny. Yes. It's, it's you know, I, I, I liked that bit. I thought that was actually really good because that's the sort of thing you'd see 
in the scene. It's like, oh, Sloane's going to come in and have a conversation. Well, give her a piece of paper. It'll look more official. Like, that's something you'd say on set, and calling attention to that was really, really funny. And as someone who is an on-air personality, that's something she might think of. So I was with that. And I'm, and again, I'm, I'm okay with temporary, momentary asides, but again, they just went on like a minute too long in this for me to really buy it. And we have thought about the scene more than Aaron Sorkin has at this point. <laughs> um, but talking more about Sloane, mainly because I, I refuse to never talk about Sloane, um, <laughs> and her, her, her subplot that she has throughout this, this episode, which has to do with Will. She becomes the little intermediary with Will's own little subplot as it relates to how he's doing mentally right now and his relationship sure. with Nina. You talked about the little, the, the little sister, big brother thing or is it big sister little brother i can't remember which way it goes i think it was little sister considering she's younger but who knows yeah are we okay at this point with sloan giving will shit or are we still supposed to believe that will is the greatest thing ever existed in the world well i think one thing that we're doing a pretty good job of in this season is taking will down a peg without making it feel too artificial we're actually focusing on an aspect of his character that has always been there but making it the center of his arc rather than will he or won't he get back together with Mac, which is his relationship with the audience and how it's kind of a little unhealthy. And it's one of the things that's seriously holding him back as both a person and as a professional uh, anchorman. That works fine. I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. I think Will is safe. And I kind of like, and it's one of the things that you can get away with more in a show where you cut huge swaths of time out, this isn't like Lost, where every episode is like the next day. Or Breaking Bad, where like by season like six or something, we've, we've only taken place over one year. When you cut that much time, you can sort of imply character growth, or at least relationships that have bonded more. And I buy will and sloan as becoming closer i think will's starting to acknowledge her intelligence i think will is starting to acknowledge that she's a good on-air personality she's covered for him uh, at news night all right so i think there's becoming a bit more mutual respect but he is sort of a big brother but he's also someone who can acknowledge a certain degree of vulnerability with someone other than mac which is, I think, I think that's good. I think he needs that. And I think he needs someone to talk to about these things who can, you know, make light of them with him, joke about them with him, and take him seriously, but who isn't going to badger him. And that's something that both Mac and Nina, in this, particularly in this episode, do. So I actually like that. It plainly meant God. That's not plain to everybody. Like right there. Just a smile would have made it folksier. Also, honey, you've got to stay away from religion. You know you're just asking for it. What else am I supposed to talk about with the president of the League of Catholic Voters? You don't have him on as a guest. That's another thing. You want guests that don't make you look so combative. That's why your likability numbers are down. I don't know. I think I'm likable. I think you're lovable. Thank you. But your numbers are problematic. Like, the whole Nina thing was kind of insane. Like, you could see the crash coming 50 miles away as you were watching her manipulate him into believing that he needed to be liked. However, at the same time, there was this one point um, within this whole conversation where she brings up a very interesting thought. And she says, she asks him, are you the one being sacrificed? Are y- You always liked the idea of this show that you did with Mac. And she came back and she gave this back to you. But you're, you're the one who's being sacrificed in this process to, to be 
as as the show has always put it, the greater fool to be the one who's being put putting yourself upon the pedestal and being the idealist, but you're the one who's being hated, not Mac or Jim. They're the ones who've been lauded at the end of the day. Is this something that we're ever going to be talking about again, or is this Sorkin kind of throwing things away just like he throws the tabloid journalist away? You know, I think this is actually a really fair argument, and I, I think it, it calls into attend it, call, it calls into focus kind of why Nina and and Will wouldn't work. And it's a little blunt, but I think it's very effective. Nina was solving the wrong problem for Will. She was with him, but she didn't understand him. When Will tells her in, like, he he can't tell the, the newsroom this, but he can tell his girlfriend that I'm feeling really vulnerable because I'm worried that my audience is losing their affection for me. That's the problem she's going to try to solve is, okay, let's figure out how to get your audience back on board because she thinks that's what's important to him. Yet, what she didn't realize and what Sloan does and maybe some of the other people in the newsroom might have been able to tell him that the problem isn't your relationship to the audience, your problem is the amount of importance that you're putting on that relationship and how that's a little unhealthy and that you'd be better off just doing your job well. So I thought all that worked, and I really do enjoy this process that we're going, because it's, it's a sort of thing that only Newsnight can really, or sorry, only the newsroom can really cover. There aren't a lot of shows right now that are about celebrities that aren't reality shows and that really talk and engage and have a frank conversation about the relationship that celebrities, regardless of what they do, have with the people who make them celebrities. And whether or not that's like a codependent relationship, or whether that's uh, an unhealthy relationship, and how to make that healthy, if that's what you're stuck with, because that's your job. Uh, And I like the way that it's exploring that. I don't see him throwing it away, because... If you remember in, like, I think it was last, was last week's episode, uh, Newsnight with Will McAvoy, the one that was just one whole episode? Yes, I believe it was last week's episode. Yeah, that was a really, really great episode, I thought. But beyond that, one of the big plot points was that Will's dad dies. And when Will's dad dies, Will is still focused on the audience. This is a guy whose priorities are off. And I don't see this show kind of forgetting about that or moving past that when they have the much cheaper drama of your father dying. Uh, and, and effective drama, don't get me wrong, but much more straightforward and TV and blunt. When you have that in front of you and you choose to focus instead on your relationship with the audience, I don't think we're losing that. And I do think a big part of that is Will is the one who is being put on the front lines by everyone else. And I don't know if it's going to explode or blow up, but I do think that's a big part of the reason why Will still feels this way when everyone else is just trying to make the best new show possible. I mean, how else are we going to enjoy this if not to watch Will throw a football for cancer on morning television? <laughs> Did you see, uh, do you follow Jeff Daniels on Twitter? No, I do I, No, I do not, but I have seen his feed from time to time. He, he tweeted, uh, I think it was actually during the episode, was a, I may have hit the light tree, but it was a spiral. <laughs> I think what what always grabbed me about his feed, I believe it's him who has under his description professional pretender. That's cute, or something of the something of the sort. And I always found that adorable. Um, but I mean, the thing with this whole idea of will being in a relationship with the audience and even with Sorkin and his throwaway drama, you talk about last week's mention of his father dying. 
I'm kind of curious as to whether all of these moments that were piling up with Will this season, his father dying, this week's moment of him breaking up with Nina and realizing that he might have something wrong with his with his perspectives on things, is this actually going to ever come to a head, or is this just Sorkin throwing more and more at Will that he will he himself is forgetting week to week as he's writing episodes? <laughs> um, I get, so here's the thing: I don't know. There's, there's something I noticed that's kind of interesting about this show. It's It might be a detail I'm making too big a deal out of, or it might be the most important thing in the world, which is the show that Will does is called Newsnight. The show that we're watching is called The Newsroom. I find that it's really likely that at some point in this series, maybe at the end of this season, maybe next season, maybe never, who knows, they're going to be at a different network. Or they're going to be doing this in a different environment, and the the sort of politics that they're running into will shift. Uh, particularly after this whole Genoa business, there's a really good chance that a lot of people are going to get fired over this. And if they do that, which is really the only logical way they could go, we could move to another station that could completely shift... Uh, Will's relationship to his audience, he might have less of an audience than ever before, but then he might suddenly have the freedom to be greater than he ever was, or not. I don't know, but I do think there's... If, if, if this was a type of show where I felt really confident that the status quo could never change too much, except for the Jim and Maggie thing, which will always be there, then I would say, yeah, okay, we're just going to be spinning these wheels forever, but I do think there's room to grow here and become better television than that. I'm willing to bet that by season four, if not the end of season three, Jim will be in a car crash and he'll be written off. <laughs> God. Really? Why, why specifically Jim? Like, why, why do you think we're just going to get rid of Jim? I don't think Allison Pill will leave the show. That's why. That's all. That's my only reasoning. Someone has to, and it might as well be Jim. They will fucking, they will put him in a car crash. Okay, and they will wrap his head in bandages and they'll take off the bandages and he'll be another actor because I swear to God, there is someone at the newsroom who thinks that the only people, reason people watch this show is to see if Jim and Maggie ever get together. Hey. I don't think they'll ever get rid of Jim. I think that'll happen to Don. That could happen to Don in a heartbeat. I don't see that happening to Jim. All right, so so moving back into the Red Team and Operation General, which we had a lot of interesting moves forward um, this week. I want to talk a little bit about the the introduction of Stephen Root into this show, um, one of my favorite character actors who plays this retired army general who happens to be a authority on chemical weapons, where they go and do an interview with him where he doesn't quite answer the question the way they hoped. So the answer Jerry Dantana had to this problem was he decided to pull a Maggie, as I would like to think it, by editing the footage to his liking. There's a big difference between what he did and what Maggie did. Okay, she didn't do it intentionally. She didn't do it intentionally to change the content. She did it as a mistake, not realizing the significance of the context. Bad? Yes. Maybe fireable? Yeah, I'd seriously consider it. But what this guy did, I think it's actually a crime. I'm pretty sure that this is some form of high-tech slander or libel. I'm not sure what the right word is. And I can't believe that he, like, especially considering, you know, I understand doing it and then, like, 
the next day when you have the meeting, you're like, oh, shit, what have I done? I, I will have to reschedule the meeting. Like, I can't imagine him, like, just being so laser-focused on this, not realizing that doing this will discredit the story that he cares so much about and that it won't get caught because there's a guy who did this interview who knows damn well what he said because he was very careful not to say anything like that. I, I almost buy his obsessive passion, but it's like, Jesus Christ, what's the matter with you, you idiot? I mean, it is an insane moment. I mean, I don't think anyone watching this moment thinks anything other than oh shit this is this is that moment it's the moment where we realize what's really going on because it's something i've been questioning for like the last two or three weeks as we've been building up this story of genoa i mean with the knowledge that this is a story which was reported back which ended up being reported wrong um by news night because while we're building up for the whole time, we've been with our reporters. Our reporters have been doing everything right. They've been getting all the confirmations they've been thinking about and dreaming of. And you've been going, so this story has to be true. So where is the point where it goes wrong? And this is it right now. And I start to bring back the question which I've been asking for the last few weeks, which is, okay, something is going to go wrong. But my question is, who ends up being the the, the party responsible I mean, it's definitely sure that Dantana is the one who causes the error in reporting, but is he the one who ends up getting the brunt of the the trouble when the shit hits the fan? Well, it's going to be Will. It's going to have to be Will. He's the face of the show. I think you've introduced this subplot where it's like, hey, they're the, they're throwing you under the bus for this. And now there he is. He's got tire tracks on his face. He's the one who would present the story. And whether or not he's the one directly responsible, he's the one who's going to lose the public trust. That's the real issue here. But the thing that I think is, is sort of interesting is um, there was a plot point. I don't know if you guys talked about it. I apologize. I didn't listen to the, I think it was last week's episode. But in last week's episode of The Newsroom, when Charlie Skinner got his, uh, uh, his the spook came in and gave him the information on Genoa. The other thing that they were talking about was the massive NSA wiretapping. Charlie Skinner didn't know why they would need, you know, the facilities that we now know were used for the for the massive NSA illegal wiretapping. And the guy comes in, sort of mentions that, oh, yeah, I heard you were looking about that. But, you know, that's that's neither here nor there. And then he goes out of his way to tell a very serious, almost out of character from what, what little we know of this character, dramatic story defending Genoa without actually admitting that it exists. And then he hands him a sheet of paper saying, here's a, basically, here's everything you need to know about what the audience knows is the NSA wiretapping. And instead, it's a bullshit story about Genoa. And what I'm wondering is, is Aaron Sorkin going to just go as far as to say that this entire Genoa stuff was specifically a conspiracy to keep Newsnight away from the wiretapping story? I hadn't even thought about that. I, I never even caught on to the NSA wiretapping as it related to last week because it felt like something that we moved away from. We kind of went, oh, we know that's there and we're moving on. Kind of like a throwaway news story. And that's exactly what the spook did in the episode. Now, maybe I'm overthinking this, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me that this would be the way that Aaron Sorkin incorporates a very contemporary story in an, a show that's currently taking place a little over a year ago. That, that, and that basically 
he manages to use this as a way to just show this is how great news night is. The government has to go out of their way to distract them from the real news because otherwise they would have found it years ago. And I feel like that sort of fits the ego of the show, that if that was the storyline that they were going with. And that's the sort of thing I've been pondering. I've been wondering if there's anything to that. At this point, I'm ready to go and rewatch last week's episode to see if I see what you're you're going at there. But uh, keeping in with the, with the general stuff that happened this episode, there was one thing which kind of struck me, and it's something that almost seems weirdly placed um, in a Sorkin show, because even though we're talking about um, Will McAvoy, who's a character who's been bloated as a, a liberal Republican, if that's a, if that's a correct wording, <laughs> I, think, okay. I think this is the first time that we're having any character within the show who we've actually been able to follow and kind of want to side with because he's with the newsroom is when we're seeing Dantana in the in the meeting kind of showing off his anti-Obama status, which is kind of weird. That is kind of weird. It is... And again, you know, I, that passion isn't entirely misplaced. There is a tendency for people to sort of gloss over the flaws of this administration just because at the very least we consider it better than the last one. And I think that's certainly a conversation worth having, and I kind of like that it was voiced, but again, look who voiced it. Someone who the newsroom has just shown is completely unscrupulous and untrustworthy. And I feel like that almost lets the true... I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, I'm going to sound like I'm exaggerating, but there's a liberal slant to this show. I think the show can be actually remarkably fair to the right wing, but it, I think often it skews left. And I think giving that speech to someone who the audience now has completely lost all appreciation for as a human being is very telling. But it's weird enough that they had to wait to this moment to give him that speech. Like, it wasn't something that he could have done at the first point of Genoa, where exactly. he, he goes, someone told me this, and I'm looking into it, but it's sounding kind of right. No, exactly. That's what I'm saying. The fact that they put it here is very telling about the way that the who like it's it's hard to blame anyone but Aaron Sorkin who wrote and created and is the producer on the show to say like the person who would say this is the bad guy. And if they had shown done this speech any time earlier, we wouldn't have felt that way. You know, I just I just find its placement a little suspicious. It's not giving of an actually a somewhat reasonable statement whether or not you love Obama, hate Obama, whatever. It's not giving that statement the same fairness that he'll give even the woman who's defending Mitt Romney in this episode. Like he's getting uh, 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 she's getting better treatment than the person who's saying, "Well, Obama isn't perfect." I mean, when you're talking about a woman who, Neil, who has been described as a person who, leaving a woman is waking up in the morning, is she getting a fair treatment when he decides, you know what, I don't need this one anymore? Well, I'm not talking about uh, uh, the Ron Paul supporter. I was talking about the Mitt Romney supporter, uh, Taylor Warren. Uh, But yeah, again, that's another one where it's like we are not giving any credence to the Ron Paul side of politics whatsoever. As a show, I buy that Neil would believe that, which is why the dialogue rang true. But as a show, the fact that that's pretty much the only talk we've had of Ron Paul so far is basically saying Ron Paul is an idiot. And I'm not even saying that I agree or disagree with Ron Paul. That's just neither here nor there. But when we're talking about politics and political beliefs, this show has a tendency to skew against even the libertarian side of the right wing. 
And I'm not even saying that that's bad. It's I, I actually almost admire a show for having a stance, whatever it is. But I think when you give these speeches to someone who is portrayed as a drunk idiot or is portrayed as an evil, let's as bad as evil as you can get in the newsroom, which is just manipulating the news uh, for your own selfish purposes. I just think it's telling. I think it's interesting. I think it's worth talking about. I'm not trying to make a major judgment about it. I just think it's interesting that there are multiple instances of that in a single episode. That's very true, I feel. Um, But I think we might have actually covered the entire episode of the newsroom at this point. Um, I I don't know if there's anything that I've left out that you want to throw in. There's a couple of of details that I noticed in this one that I thought were kind of interesting. First off, uh, they go out of their way to make sure that basketball is playing in the background of that interview. So I suspect uh, next week that's going to be the glitch that Dantana overlooked in his manipulation of the editing is like the score is going to be different or something. Oh, okay. That, that kind of would, would make sense as, but then again, there's no other reason to go out of your way to put that in there. You but, know, but then like again, that sounds like something where it would be someone like Mac catching Dantana for leading them in the wrong direction. While it's obvious based on the fact that we're seeing all of this deposition things from episode one, that they actually end up reporting it. So they probably didn't catch it. I don't think they caught it until afterwards is my point. My point is that I think that's, what's going to be Dantana's downfall is that detail where at some point they're going to say, Dantana, what the fuck? (laughs) What have you done? The other thing I like, and this is a little throwaway bit, but I actually thought it was kind of fun. I actually liked this being placed in this context was uh, there was a quick aside with Sloan talking about the failure of John Carter at the box office, which everyone was reporting as this horrible thing that happened to Disney. And Sloan recontextualized it saying, yes, it was a huge bomb, but their stock isn't going down. They're doing okay. They can take this one on the chin, which I wish someone had said when the John Carter debacle was going down, partly because I'm one of the few people who, who openly admitted to liking that movie while it was in theaters, but mostly because it felt like this weird runaway thing that like the the newsroom doesn't cover entertainment news really Uh, and that's the thing that I'm more ingrained in you know as a film critic as an editor at a website and I feel like there's there's moments that, that that actually was nice to me as a professional in this industry to see the newsroom do what the newsroom does but to something that I actually cared about as a film lover and a film critic so that's just something that I appreciated. I don't even know if there's anything to talk about. I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on that, but I just liked it in this episode, so I wanted to give it a shout-out. So, okay, because um, that is a little thing that I had jotted down, and I'm happy you brought it up, um, because on top of being a really fun moment for people who are into entertainment business, I like the idea that it contextualized entertainment news. But a quick question to you, as someone who works in that industry, like, do you see this as a slight against entertainment journalists who make everything, where it makes every weekend at the box office sound like a do or die moment? Uh, yeah, I actually do, but I actually think it's a fair one. I, I think entertainment journalism has, in many ways, moved away from journalism into sort of elaborate rumor mongering, uh, where it's like most of the news you see online about movies is, you know, we hear this might happen in the next Star Wars. Well, yeah, but that's not news. How, how many sources do you have on that? You know, there's that's that's not. We're just conversing like fanboys, and I think there's a lot a fair criticism to be lobbed at that. And I like that the newsroom took a moment, even if they focus on the other angle, which is when we do have hard facts, they tend to be 
either like a press release, pretty standard, nothing to argue with, or numbers. We have numbers. We have, and, and people use those numbers to create a narrative which may or may not be fair to the product, I, that being the film or the TV show or music or whatever, or the people who made it or produced it. So when a movie doesn't do well at the box office, some people think that that's an indicator that that movie, A, is bad, which I thought was completely unfair in regards to John Carter. It's not a brilliant film, but I thought it was fun. Or it, that it's something that, like, oh, Disney, oh, well, taking the mighty giant down a notch. Disney is fine. They lost a little money. They make tons of money every year. They can, they can take one on the chin. And I just think that basically telling the entertainment journalism community that, like, you know what? It's not that big a deal. It's okay. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Because everyone I knew was kind of consciously aware that the whole John Carter debacle felt contrived. It felt like someone turned it into a narrative. Oh, John Carter's over budget. It must be a disaster. Well, hang on a second. Let's actually see the movie. Let's not tell people it's a disaster before anyone has seen it. Let's not create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then let's not take everyone to task for making a movie that honestly wasn't even that bad. If you want to take the task, take the task for The Lone Ranger, because that movie sucked. Well, I mean, it's the same story as The Lone Ranger, but I find it really weird that when it happened with John Carter, it wasn't so much people were, well, they were, but it wasn't, well, at least for the people I was talking to, it wasn't so much that people were talking about how, oh my goodness, it didn't make that much money, it must be that bad. It's, oh my goodness, that movie went so horribly bad at the box office that somebody must be losing their job right now. But no one said that about The Lone Ranger, which I think statistically probably did worse than John Carter did. I, I, I'm pretty sure, I, mean, I don't know the numbers in front of me, I'm, uh, and, and you know, home video is going to have a major effect on this. John Carter did okay overseas. I think John Carter is actually in the black. And in fact, when John Carter came out on home video, on more than one occasion, I think three, but at least two, I was in either a Best Buy or a video rental establishment, and I literally heard someone say, hey, do you have any copies of John Carter? And this person at the store said, no, we can't keep them in stock. <laughs> John Carter did okay in the long run, is my point. And The Lone Ranger didn't do that well overseas. It's not on home video yet. Maybe it'll find an audience eventually. It's certainly a bizarre enough film that someone might be able to appreciate it on some level. I wasn't a fan. I didn't think it was particularly good. But, um, you know, and, and John Carter did have an impact. Uh, it did scuttle the planned sequels for John Carter and Andrew Stanton, who I'm pretty sure didn't necessarily want to. I, I don't have a quote in front of me, and I don't have words in his mouth, but the director of John Carter, who had made his first live-action movie, who directed Finding Nemo, ended up agreeing to do Finding Nemo 2, which I, I was under the impression that he didn't want to do so badly. So I think that's the, the worst it had, and I think... The worst we might see from The Lone Ranger is Army Hammer won't become a big star anytime soon. Disney might lower their budgets on some of these Johnny Depp things that they keep doing. But honestly, it, it, there's no reason to suspect it's not an aberration. Johnny Depp's movies tend to do very well. Alice in Wonderland was terrible. That made tons of money. Yeah, that's true. That's true for Hollywood all year round. But talking a little bit more about throwaway lines in this episode that I really enjoyed. As a fan of football, there was nothing more exciting to me than hearing Charlie Skinner argue the merits of the World Cup (laughs) 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 to to this guy watching March Madness. Because, guys, the World Cup is next year. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be in Brazil. Are you going to the World Cup, Will? Please say yes, even though you're lying to me. 
I'm not going to Brazil. I'm sorry. I wish I could. I wish I could. Uh, I actually love the World Cup. I think the World Cup is a lot of fun. I, it's the one so-called world sporting event. Besides maybe rugby, but like that actually involves the whole world. It really bothers me that America wins the World Series every year. What are the odds of that? That's got to be some sort hey, of rigging hey, Will. involved. Will. Yeah. Canada can win it, all right? You guys have the Toronto Blue Jersey. How often does it? How often has it happened? And here's the thing. I don't know the answer to that question because I honestly don't care about sports that much. But what makes me care about sports is when people around me care about sports. Like my girlfriend now is really, uh, really cheering for the Dodgers. He's a big Dodgers fan right now, and I guess they're having an amazing season. So I'm excited about that. And the World Cup spreads everywhere. And even though America claims not to care, they're going to care when it's actually on TV. They're going to care when these sporting events are just filling ESPN. It's going to matter, and we're going to care about our own team hopefully doing okay. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be cool to win? Probably won't, but wouldn't it be cool? Well, I mean, a decade a decade ago, I would have agreed with the whole idea of America not caring about football. Um, I, I, I apologize, Internet, if you're confused. I refuse to use the word soccer. Yes. Uh, football, <laughs> um, year-round, because it's something I enjoy and I keep watching. But we're talking about the past year in which NBC has bought up amazing sports rights to show Formula One racing and the English Premier League this year. So, I mean, it's changed. America is kind of digging the football now. Well, we have more access to it now. We're having cable stations that actually run sporting events from from other countries. We're having uh, a a major influx of uh, Mexican-Americans, Hispanic-Americans who care more about this sport than the average white dude. Uh, I, I feel like that sounds wrong, but technically that's that's true. You know, I grew up in a uh, predominantly Hispanic and Latino neighborhood, and soccer was a big deal to every kid in the, in town. All right, everyone played soccer; it was wonderful. So I think we're just starting to see a little bit more focus on what other cultures and other people with other interests want to see. So cool, more World Cup. I'm down. Sounds great with me. I'm going to care about as much as I care about any other sport. So screw it. Awesome. Um, I think that's going to be a really good point to end off this week because at the end of the day, if I can, <laughs> if I can shoehorn in the World Cup and in football into a newsroom podcast, I think I've done my job well. Yeah. I, I'm, well, I'm very happy for it. <laughs> I, I shoehorned in John Carter. I'm feeling happy. Yeah, we, we're, all, we're all happy all around, and that's what really matters. But Will, why don't you let everyone know where they can find more of you and your work on the internet? Okay, uh, so uh, I am the film channel editor and uh, lead critic for CraveOnline.com, so you can check out my writings there. Uh, I'm also on the B-Movies podcast, uh, which you can find on iTunes. You can subscribe on iTunes. I wish you would. And you can also find uh, that on Podbean and at Crave Online as well. We have links to it there. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at William Bibiani, B-I-B-B-I-A-N-I. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. I try to respond to everyone who talks to me. So if you have any hard, firm opinions on anything I've said about the newsroom or John Carter or the Lone Ranger this week, by all means, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, you can find all of my writing over at gmanreviews.com. I'm on Twitter at gmanreviews, and you can go hear me on other podcasts such as the Movies You Love podcast and the Unnamed Movie podcast over on iTunes or through gmanreviews.com. Why am I not on the Movies podcast? That's what I know. (laughs) What the hell, man? Oh, we'll talk about that in a moment, Will. We'll talk oh, about I that see. In a moment. Okay. <laughs> 
But as always, you can hear more of the Navigating the Newsroom podcast over at filmgeekradio.com as well as through iTunes and Stitcher and all of these wonderful avenues. We wish the most for Andrew Johnson as he travels home. Just tweet at us, Andrew Johnson. He's at William Bibiani. At William Bibiani, Andrew Johnson is at Writer Andrew. I'm Andrew Robinson at Gman Reviews. So just say hey, how are you doing? Otherwise, enjoy the show and good night. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.